welcome to you all this evening and a special welcome to Professor Steve Riker, who will deliver tonight this term lecture in the Psychology as Social Science Public Lecture Series. Before I introduce uh, Professor Riker, let me just say a few words about the series. And many of you have been coming to our uh, lectures along the years, so you excuse me if I repeat myself, but I will. Uh, Psychology as a Social Science is a program of uh, public lectures on the relations between psychology and the social sciences hosted by the Institute of Social Psychology here at the school and generously supported by the LSE Pro-Directors Fund, the lectures aim to draw attention to the potential and the necessity of integrating psychology in the larger intellectual program of the social sciences. It is bringing together psychologists, philosophers and social scientists to reflect on how the disciplinary traditions of psychology have engaged with the social sciences and addressed topics that are central to both. The lectures also seek to emphasize the past, the present, and the future of psychology here at the school, where from the mid-20th century onwards, the project and the vision of a societal psychology took shape. Now, let me say a few words about our speaker tonight. Steve Riker is Professor of Social Psychology at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, where he's also the head of the School of Psychology. Professor Riker is a leading social psychologist whose work has covered a wide range of issues related to, the, to intergroup relations, social identity and collective action, the social psychology of tyranny and oppression, and the problem of crowd behavior. His work on crowd behavior in particular has been pathbreaking, having provided the conceptual and empirical tools to reassess the traditional conception of the crowd as a site of irrationality, de-individuation, and deviance. The recent BBC experiments on tyranny and oppression have provided yet another fundamental reference for thinking about extreme human behavior. His many books and papers include Self and Nation, Crowds and Social Movements, and Collective Action and Social Change, amongst many others. His lecture tonight on the banality of evil continues to explore a question that resonates deeply in the history of social psychology. First posed by a philosopher and political scientist, Hannah Arendt, it was pursued conceptually and empirically by social psychologists exposed to the moral, cultural, and psychological devastation that followed the Second World War in Europe. How far can, you go? can we go? How far can I go? How far can you go? What explains our readiness to obey and carry out evil deeds? Steve Riker's work has been tremendously inspirational for all of us who seek to sustain psychology in a social science context. We're delighted that he's contributing to the series and delivering tonight's lecture on Beyond the Banality of Evil. Please join me in giving him a very warm welcome.
Okay, well, thank you very much for that, Sandra. I, I would advise you to leave at this point, because after that introduction, it can only go downhill from there. Let's see if this works. I'm going to be talking on the title of Beyond the Banality of Evil. And the reference is quite obvious. If there is one phenomenon which marks the consciousness of the last half century and more, it is, of course, the Holocaust. In 1945, Hannah Arendt remarked prophetically, it took some a few years to catch up, she remarked that the problem of evil will be the fundamental question of post-war intellectual life in Europe. And if there is one image, I think, that summarizes our understanding of how that happened, how it was possible, how people could act in this way, it is the picture you see there. The man in the glass booth, Adolf Eichmann, in trial in Jerusalem in 1961. And the power of the image is precisely its ordinariness. A man who had done monstrous things appears as a typical inoffensive bureaucrat, and the horror lies in the ordinariness. And that is what has framed our questions about how could this be. Well, what I'm going to try and do tonight is twofold. First of all, I want to suggest to you that we have been misled in the questions we have asked. One of the quotations I use many times because I particularly like it is from Thomas Pynchon in his Proverbs for Paranoids where, you, where he says, if you get people asking the wrong questions, you don't need to worry about the answers. We have been asking the wrong questions about how people can act, commit such extreme acts of inhumanity. And in my first half, and more than anything, I want to try and reframe the question we should ask what we try to understand in order to understand these phenomena of extreme inhumanity, of genocide and of holocaust. And then in the second half, more tentatively, I will suggest some answers to some new questions. But let me start off with the first half. Images. Powerful images. This is the image that is known. That's the man in the glass booth. And the other image, which those of you who have read Cesarani's recent <coughs> new biography of Eichmann will recognize as Eichmann in his pomp. It is interesting that as the trial took place in 1961, some of the people for the prosecution suggested that Eichmann be forced to wear his Nazi uniform because they anticipated that he would try and portray himself as other from what he had been. That he would portray himself as mild and inoffensive. I want to suggest that to some extent we have bought too far into Eichmann's self-presentation as the man in the glass booth. And it is this character, this confident, sardonically smiling, self-righteous character who more properly represents the basis of the Holocaust and the types of questions we should ask about it. But let me now go to that courtroom in 1961. Eichmann on trial. A show trial in many ways. For Ben-Gurion, it was, who was behind the scenes in organizing the trial, it was a very important part of his project to reconstruct uh, Israel in the 1960s. 
And one of those in the audience, one of those watching, certainly for the first four or five days, was the younger Hannah Arendt, brought up in Germany, having fled Germany, known at this time for her phenomenal work on totalitarianism, later to become probably much better known for her book on Eichmann in Jerusalem. Now, before I comment on Arendt, I think it's important to make some framing remarks about her. Her book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, caused massive controversy. It is hard to imagine a book over the last 50 years that has caused more controversy. And it caused controversy not so much for what she said about Eichmann, but for six pages in the midst of it where she comments upon the role of the Jewish leadership in occupied Europe during the war, where she criticises that leadership, the so-called Judenrat. That caused ferocious controversy, led her to come under ferocious attack even from her erstwhile friends. There's a very famous interchange of letters between her and Gershon Sholem, where Sholem accuses her of not being Jewish. And her reply, I think, is magnificent. She says, look, she says, if I ever claimed not to be Jewish, my mother would have come for me. Of course I'm Jewish. And I stand as a Jew. But for me, as a Jew, doesn't mean that I have to uncritically agree with everything that other Jews do or the Jewish state does. Doesn't mean that I have to love all other Jews. She uses a magnificent phrase, which I like and I hope you will retain. She talks about being solidaire et solitaire, showing solidarity and yet being single, being critical, thinking for herself. Her works are even now being republished. In fact, just before this talk, uh, Sandra and I discovered we both bought the same books which are being republished. They're magnificent writings. Probably one of the greatest problems of Eichmann in Jerusalem was its very eloquence. The phrase banality of evil is a magnificent phrase, a magnificent soundbite, and its meaning has outrun her. So in many ways, I'm not so much criticizing Arendt, although I think she said some things that are problematic. I'm criticizing the tradition that has come out of Arendt, what the banality of evil has come to mean, how it's been understood. Now, with that preface, let us look at some of the things she said. Originally, the thought had been that this man who did such indescribable things, such monstrous things, had to be a monster. He had to be different from you and me. He had to stand aside. He had to be able to tell a difference. We would expect him to be a dangerous and perverted personality, but he wasn't. He was terrifyingly normal. He was like any other bureaucrat. He was fastidious. He was hunched over. He was carefully taking notes. He wasn't a man of extravagant gestures, but careful and small and insignificant, it seems, in everything he did. He was characterized, she says, by sheer thoughtlessness. And from this, she derives the lesson of the fearsome word and thought-defying banality of evil, a phrase she only uses in the very last sentence of the main body of the book, and which is also the subtitle of the book, and has been misunderstood in many, many ways. Because Arendt aroused more than a hornet's nest in what she had said about the Zionist leadership during the war, many sought almost willfully to misrepresent what she said, that she was saying that the acts were banal, that the killing was banal. Not at all. Arendt didn't 
underestimate what had happened. She was no Holocaust denier. She lays it out in exhaustive detail. If you read her books, it is an exhausting experience. She doesn't flinch. No, she's talking about the motives of those who act. She's talking about why Eichmann and his ilk perpetrated these acts. And it's not just that they are ordinary men and women. She's not just saying that any of us could do it. She is, of course, saying that. But she's saying more. She's giving an explanation. And the explanation is precisely that the reason why ordinary people can do it is because they don't think about what they're doing. At one point, she talks about sheer inattention. There you can see she talks about thoughtlessness. People are obsessed with the details of the machinery, obsessed with the bureaucracy. And what they forget is that they are running a machinery of mass murder. So the notion of the banality of evil is in one part an argument that under certain circumstances, yes, most of us could do it. But it's more than that. I'm not going to contest that first bit. What I want to contest is the second, more detailed claim that the reason that allows ordinary people to commit these acts is thoughtlessness, inattention, a failure to realize or indeed to think about what one actually does. <coughs> now again, I've already tried to bracket off the Arendtian tradition from what Arendt herself says because her notion of thinking is actually rather complex and rather different to the way in which it has been subsequently understood. I don't have time to go into that. I just want us to, at the moment, bear with these redolent phrases, the strong argument about the thoughtless mass murderer. And this argument endures into the historical literature. One of the most famous books of recent times by Christopher Browning is Ordinary Men. He follows <coughs> one of the groups who before the death camps were built killed Jews by shooting, rounded people up in the rear of the advancing Wehrmacht, took them in large numbers to pits outside town, shot them in the head, pushed them into the pit. Reserve Police Battalion 101. And what Browning says is, look, these men were not ideological Nazis. If you look at their background, if anything, they were less Nazi than the norm. They were less likely to be early members of the Nazi party. They were less likely to have followed Hitler. They were more likely to be members of trade unions, to be members of the uh, uh, Social Democrats or the Communist parties. Yet these ordinary men committed these acts. And again, in a ringing phrase, the overall analysis is more nuanced, but often, as I say, the worst fate for an academic is to be remembered for an aphorism, uh, and your worst enemies are your acolytes. This phrase stands out. If the men of Reserve Police Battalion 101 could become killers under such circumstances, what group of men cannot? Now, one of the things I think that is particularly interesting in the light of what Sandra was saying at the beginning is that the argument for the banality of evil is not one that is limited to philosophy or history, but it begins to be one 
that involves psychology as well. This is one of the few areas, and the studies I'm going to cite are some of the few studies that are known not only outside social psychology and outside psychology, but are known outside academia. People might, might not be able to cite you these names, but many of you who have never done psychology for a moment in your life will be to some extent familiar with what I'm about to talk about now. This is one of the few areas, as I say, where psychology and history and philosophy have fused to create an edifice that seems so solid that virtually none have questioned it for a long time. In 1961, at almost exactly the same time as the Rent was sitting watching Eichmann, Stanley Milgram, this is Stanley Milgram, was conducting his very famous obedience studies in Yale. He also was a flamboyant individual. I, what, there's a recent biography of him by Thomas Blass, a beautiful bit of narrative psychology. There isn't much narrative psychology. He is described, amongst other things, as an equal opportunities insulter, a phrase I always liked because it meant that he was as nasty to his vice chancellor as he was to his students. Whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But certainly an interesting man. You will all, as I say, in some sense know of these studies. What happens is people are brought into a laboratory and told that they're doing an experiment on learning. And the real experimental subjects are asked to help by taking the role of an experimenter. And they're given a memory task. And if the subject gets things wrong, the subject is in fact a confederate of the real experimenter. If the subject gets them wrong, to give them an electric shock. And each time they get it wrong to mount the level of electric shock. And they sit there in front of this big, supposed electric generator, generating real electric shocks for all they know, and they hear screams coming from the other room. It goes from mild shock to severe shock to extreme shock, XXX, to danger of death and beyond. And what Milgram finds in his baseline condition is that two-thirds of his participants go all the way to danger of death and beyond. They believe that what they are doing could kill someone for getting a memory task wrong. And in fact, all of his participants, all of them, get as far as the severe danger XXX mark. And Milgram seems to show experimentally that what happens in Nazi Germany is not some particularity of the German psyche or history or culture or whatever, we're talking about processes that seem to affect ordinary people wherever you go, whether in Germany in the 40s, whether in Yale in the 60s. And in his famous book, his 74 book, Obedience to Authority, written 13 years later, Milgram says the ordinary person who shot the person did so out of a sense of obligation, a conception of his duties as a subject and not from any particularly aggressive tendencies. This idea, the notion of an agentic state, where you focus on your responsibility to the experimenter, not what you're doing to the learner, to your victim. He acknowledges it's taken straight from a rent. A rent informs Milgram. Milgram validates a rent. It is a symbiotic relationship. Perhaps even more famous, ten years later, in the early 70s, Philip Zimbardo, doing a very good impersonation of Lucifer, I think. Very nice beard. 
conducted this famous Stanford prison study. And again, you all know of this to some extent. Young men, young American students at Stanford University, randomly divided into prisoners and guards, put into that role into a mock prison, which is in fact the basement of the psychology department. And the headline is that after five days, he has to end this study, which is meant to go on for two weeks, because the guards begin to be sadistic, disturbingly sadistic. And the prisoners begin to suffer real problems, including psychosomatic disorders. And Zimbardo says he himself helplessly falls into his role and had to be told by one of his students, Christian Maslach, who later married him. <laughs> yes, it's a very good question. Um, <laughs> what he was doing, and then he realizes what, he do, what he's doing, he snaps out of it and he ends the study. And he too comes up with this notion that somehow in these situations, particularly in these group-like situations, we helplessly fall into the role. Acts of guard aggression, he says, were emitted simply as a natural consequence of being in the uniform of a guard and asserting the power inherent in that role. You helplessly, you cannot help it that under these situations, you stop being aware of what you're doing. You stop thinking about the consequences of your action. You fall into role. You become a good subject. You become a good guard. You become a good prisoner or whatever. Now note that in putting together the psychology and the history, there has been something of a slippage. Arendt's notion of the thoughtless individual has become almost an automaton, subject to natural laws. That has grave implications in terms of responsibility. The implication, if you go as far as Zimbardo, is that people aren't responsible because they have no choice, because they are naturally sucked into these roles. Zimbardo, interestingly, explains 9-11 by saying that the, those on board the planes couldn't help the roles they were put into. They had no choice. He defends the torturers in Abu Ghraib. He was one of the expert counsel defending the torturers in Abu Ghraib on the basis they couldn't help it. They slipped into role, and they helplessly acted in the way that they did. It is worth contrasting that with Arendt. Arendt says of the Holocaust, yes, perhaps it could have happened elsewhere, but it didn't. She makes the point in one of her most powerful essays, Auschwitz on Trial, that even in Auschwitz, guards had choice. Everybody had the choice of good and evil. She makes the distinction between temptation and force. You might be tempted into acting badly. Nobody forces you. You've still got choice. You've still got responsibility. So there's a crucial slippage over time from thoughtlessness to the automaton who is not aware of what he or she is doing and a loss of responsibility. But the point is that together this edifice is more powerful than even the parts alone. Together it becomes so powerful that nobody feels they can question it, because even if they're a little bit concerned about one bit of the evidence, they think there's so much there elsewhere that they can't question. And the idea enters the popular culture. The notion of the penalty of evil, you will find everywhere. It's hard to go a week listening to the Radio 4 Today programme. If you're in Scotland, to show you're Scottish, you have to listen to Radio Scotland. So uh, I haven't yet become fully Scottish. Virtually a week doesn't go by without hearing some phrase or another referring to the banality of evil. When I went into Google and put in the banality of evil, this picture came up. 
which is why it's there. I'm not an art critic. If anybody can tell me why it represents the penalty of evil, I will um, uh, plagiarise you shamelessly in the future. This is a quotation from a, another wonderful book by Peter Novak. Uh, it's got different titles in the US and the UK. Uh, in the US, it's called The Holocaust in American History. Uh, in the UK, it's called The Holocaust in Collective Memory, uh, to sell better. But he says, from the 60s on, a kind of synergy developed between the symbol of Arendt's Eichmann and the symbol of Milgram's subjects, involved in discussing everything from the Vietnam War to the tobacco industry, and, of course, reflecting back on discussions of the Holocaust. Really powerful. Part of our culture by now. Whether you agree, for instance, with Zimbardo or not, whether you think his explanation of events is right or not, his explanation has become part of our culture, and people have an understanding of themselves as Zimbardo-esque subjects, being helpless to roles. We discovered that when we revisited uh, that paradigm a number of years back. We're talking now perhaps not about a psychological explanation. We're talking about a social fact. And what I want to begin to do is perhaps to unravel that social fact by looking at the evidence in both history and psychology. Because I, what I want to suggest is that in both disciplines, people are questioning this, but only question it with muted voices because they believe the other side believes it as well. Let's look at the history. I've already mentioned Cesarani's new biography. There's other work by people like Lozovic on Hitler's bureaucrats, Vetlays and many others beside. Let me just take one incident in Eichmann's life. Eichmann's most direct contribution to the Holocaust was the deportation of Hungarian Jews in 1944, probably the most intense deportation there was in the whole period of the Holocaust. Eichmann went to Hungary to push things along. And when he got there, he found that Himmler was beginning to shape a little bit, to waver a little bit. 1944, the war's being lost. Himmler's looking for an out. He tries to do a deal. 10,000 Allied trucks for a million Jews. Now, whether Himmler meant it or not, nobody really knows. It's a matter of controversy. But what we do know is that Eichmann was furious. He believed in the deportation. He believed in what he was doing. He had come up with new and clever and creative schemes to do it. And when Eichmann tried to stop it, he was furious and he confronted Eichmann. He argued with Eichmann. He put probably his life in danger by challenging Eichmann. This was not a man who was merely following orders. This was not a man who thoughtlessly simply went around along with the norms that were there. This was a creative intelligent and dedicated individual who believed in what he was doing to the extent of questioning orders, questioning norms, challenging his superiors. The notion of a death-bound bureaucrat who didn't know what he was doing and who was just a cog is entirely false. Others have made similar points that those who, under the Nazi system, were didn't have clear orders to work to. There is a redolent phrase sometimes used of the Nazi system that Hitler didn't give clear orders because if he did, people would just fulfill the orders. What he did is he gave a more nebulous idea of what he wanted. Then people worked towards Hitler. 
They competed to be creative in fulfilling what Hitler wanted. They were the most dynamic and the most creative and the most original of individuals. What's more, they were forced to confront what they were doing. When there were killings, it was important that all of them were blooded so they couldn't deny responsibility in the same way, perhaps, that the Mafia will seek to blood people so they can no longer denounce others. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were often involved on the front line in the killings, and they were creative in them. And so Vetlazen concludes that, in a sense, the metaphor of a slippery slope that people slide down into bureaucracy not knowing what they're doing is quite wrong. It's quite the opposite. Eichmann and his ilk did not come to murder Jews by accident or in a fit of absent-mindedness, nor by blindly obeying orders. They worked hard, fought hard, took the lead over many years. They were the alchemists of evil. They ascended painfully and painstakingly to that peak of evil. What of the men of Reserve Battalion 101? Well, here I think Daniel Goldhagen asks a pertinent question. Again, it probably is foolish of me to, to cite Daniel Goldhagen because anybody who knows the Holocaust literature knows that this is one of the most controversial uh, books in that literature. My personal view is that in many ways he's wrong. He's profoundly flawed. Um, that's his notion that there is something inherent in Germans which leads to the Holocaust. Misunderstands how the Holocaust could happen. My great-grandfather was in the Lodgetta and when my grandfather and father sought to get out, they went to my great-grandfather and they said to him, come with us. We've got to get out. And he said, I'm old and it's difficult. And I know the Germans. I work with the Germans. In 1918 and 1919, and yes, they're harsh. Yes, they're disciplinarian. But they're civilized. It's the country of Beethoven, Goethe. So it won't be easy, but I'll be safe. The Holocaust in part happened because Jews didn't believe that the Germans could act in this particular way. That's an aside. My point to simply make the point that I'm not buying everything that Goldhagen says. But Goldhagen asks a very pertinent point about Browning. And Browning's example and his use of the term ordinary men. And he talks about that very famous photo that some of you might have seen about a Nazi soldier leading away a small girl who you know is about to be shot and pushed into a pit. And he asks, did he see a little girl and ask himself why he was about to kill this delicate human being who normally would have received his compassion, protection and nurturance? Or did he see a Jew, a young one, but a Jew nonetheless? In other words, was he unaware of what he was doing? Was he unaware of the consequences? How could he be unaware of the consequences when that young girl's blood and brains would be splattered on his uniform in a few minutes' time? He wasn't unaware of it. Not one little bit. He wasn't thoughtless. He had thought hard. And he had achieved a way of justifying what he was actually doing. So I want to suggest, first of all, that the historical evidence at least raises question marks. Question marks about the Arendtian notion of thoughtlessness, that it doesn't stack up, either in the case of Eichmann himself, or in the case of his fellow bureaucrats, or even in the case of the frontline soldiers. So what about the psychology? Perhaps the banality of evil doesn't apply in this particular case, but still, there's that strong psychological evidence showing ordinary people, 
doing these terrible things. So let's again look at these. Let's look at Milgram. The first thing to be said about Milgram is the studies are quite magnificent. The phenomena are remarkably powerful. The notion of the agentic state as an explanation is as weak as the phenomena are powerful. Milgram only comes up with it 13 years later. Even those who are his greatest fans, like Blass, admit that it's the weakest part of his edifice. What's more, the notion of the agentic state cannot explain variations in different conditions of Milgram's studies in the amount of compliance. In some, yes, it's two-thirds. In some, it goes down to 10%. No notion there's variation in the level of agentic state. What's more, experimental studies have shown there is no relationship between giving up responsibility to the experimenter and the level of electric shock that is given. Now, the danger is we are so blinded by the phenomena that people are doing these things that we are led into buying the explanation of an agentic state of thoughtlessness. There is no evidence of a thoughtlessness explanation. What then of Zimbardo? That's just the last quote. Can create the notion of arbitrariness that their life is totally controlled by us, by the system, you, me, uh, Jackie, um, and they'll have no privacy at all. There's, there's cells, uh, you know, sleeping, sleeping in rooms with bars on them, that there'll be constant surveillance. Nothing they do will go unobserved. They have no freedom of action. They can do nothing or say, say nothing that we don't permit. You in position, what would you have done? I don't know. I can't tell you that I know what I'd do. Would you believe? I don't think. I don't believe I would have been as inventive as you. you mean I don't that? believe I would have applied as much imagination to what I was doing. Do you understand? Yes, I understand. Uh, I think I would have been a guard. I don't think it would have been such a masterpiece. <laughs> Okay. Well, let me explain those. Some of you could see what they were saying already. But for those of you who will be less familiar with Zimbardo and with his study, Zimbardo, remember, argues that people naturally fall into role. They helplessly slide down the slippery slope into role and do terrible things. And to justify that claim, he has to say, I didn't tell them to do it. There's nothing forcing them to do it. He says, participants had no prior training in how to play the randomly assigned roles. The first bit of video you saw was live video <coughs> at the time of Zimbardo's instructions to his guards back in 1971. And what you could hear unambiguously is him telling them what to do. Don't allow them any freedom. Don't treat them like individuals, so on. Perhaps even more significantly is he constantly uses the word we. We are going to do this. We are going to do that. He positions himself as head guard, telling them what to do. So far from them not having anything impelling them in the direction of a particular form of action, what they have is a very clear leader telling them precisely what to do. Now, despite that, again, if you look closely at the evidence, Zimbardo's guards don't always fall into Rome. In fact, about a third of them are on the side of the prisoners. About a third of them are neutral. Only one or two are truly sadistic. And one of the sadistic ones is this character who was dubbed John Wayne. And this is him after the event talking to one of the prisoners to whom he was particularly unpleasant. The point about it is, A, he has chosen 
under a condition of leadership, yes, but he's still chosen to act as a guard, but then he has acted creatively as a guard. He has created a masterpiece. This man is no mere automaton. He knows what he's doing. He's not just following orders. So the psychological evidence, when you look at it closely, doesn't stack up either. And in fact, when you put the two sides together, what you find is, yes, the history and the psychology tell you the same story, but they tell you precisely the opposite story to the banality of evil. What they show you is that, first, perpetrators know what they're doing. They're not inattentive. They're not thoughtless. Secondly, they have choice over what they're doing. They are not automatons, automata. They always have some choice over how to act, whether it is in the psychology uh, experiments or whether it is in the case of Nazi Germany. Indeed, it is interesting that when you look closely again at Browning's book on ordinary men, he too shows, much like Zimbardo's guards, that you had three sets of people. Some of Reserve Battalion 101 actively tried to be helpful towards some of their victims. Some tried to be neutral, some were sadistic. And if they chose not to kill, nothing happened to them. They might not get promoted, but they weren't killed in turn. So again, perpetrators had the choice. Perpetrators are creative and imaginative. Perpetrators glorify what they are doing. Eichmann, after the war, when still in Argentina, was interviewed by a neo-Nazi, well, actually not a neo-Nazi, just a plain old unreconstructed Nazi journalist, about his views, supposedly related to his autobiography. And he said, if we had discovered that we had killed 10.3 million Jews, I would have said, good, job well done. After the war, with perspective, he still knew what he was doing still celebrated what he was doing. And so, putting these things together, the point is that it's not that evildoers are unaware that they're doing wrong. They think that what they are doing is right. And the question, therefore, that we have to ask is not how do people become inattentive? How do they slip into role? How do they slip into an agentic state? How do they stop thinking about the end product of their actions? No, that's not the problem. We have been directing our intellectual firepower, our attempts to explain in answering the wrong question. The question we need to answer, I want to argue, is how can harm doing come to be glorified as virtue? And if nothing else, I want to try and persuade you that that is what we need to address as psychologists, as historians, philosophers, and social scientists. Now... I'm aware of the fact that already I've been talking for some 40 minutes, so the second half of my talk is going to be more telescope. Because in many ways, what I'm going to try and do is to put together a series of insights, none of which in and of themselves I think are particularly original. Every point I'm going to make now, you will have heard before somewhere. But I hope together they give a certain coherence and a certain power in answering this particular question. How can genocide, killing, extreme inhumanity, become the defense of virtue? In answering that question, I again just want to stress one point. On the whole, the psychology of intergroup relations, when asked why we do terrible things to other people, focuses on what we think of them. 
If you open your social psychology textbook, and not just your social psychology textbook, and you look at intergroup relations or discrimination, you'll find chapters on stereotypes or prejudice. What do we think about them? What do we feel about them? I want to argue that in a sense what is more critical is how we define ourselves, how we define our own identities. And that our understanding of the other is always in relation to the self-definition, but the self-definition, the ways we define ourselves, always take precedence. So I'm going to talk about five steps, but in effect I'm going to talk about two pairs of self and other, which when you fit them all together, come up with a conclusion which makes killing an act of virtue. So let me briefly go through these steps. The first is the way in which we define ourselves, but not as individuals, but define ourselves collectively. In recent years, social psychology has become particularly interested in the notion of social identity, a shared sense that we belong to a common social category. Now, often that work has been, to borrow McBillig's phrase, unpopulated, as if group processes operate when we suddenly, psychologically think of ourselves as group members and stop acting as individuals or in interpersonal relations, but as group members. More recently, there's a whole spate of interesting research, I think, which shows how the quality of our relations with others in the world is transformed when we relate to those others as part of a common we. In other words, the macro-social, or you might say the meso-social, the collective level, is only relevant to the extent you can see how it impinges on the micro-social, how it frames our micro-interactions. A spate of research, for instance, that shows that when we think of ourselves as we, we're much more likely to seek consensus. Often when you look at people conversing, you can either pick up on what you agree or disagree with. When there is a sense of we, we pick up agreement. We have a process of what Alex Haslam calls consensualization. And having mentioned Alex Haslam, I should have uh, mentioned Alex up front. Much of this work I've done collaboratively uh, with Alex. So in a sense, the ghost of Alex Haslam is uh, hopefully in the room as well. We are much more likely, even physically, to be close to others. We've recently done some work um, on the largest collective event in the world, the Marg Mela in Alabad in North India. It's a religious Hindu festival which allegedly, on its 12-year cycle at the apex of which uh, 100 million people come to this event. Last year, when we were there, it was the uh, uh, half Mela, the Ard Mela, 30 million people altogether, intensely crowded so crowded that you could hardly move. All the conditions which psychologists tell us are deeply aversive and lead to rats being stressed, so it must affect human beings badly as well. Um, what you find is actually no problem with proximity. People want proximity. Why do they want proximity? Because people are not other to them. They're not an alien. They're not an intrusion on their space. They're part of a common we. They're an affirmation of their identity. We have experimental studies to show this as well. If you divide people into two groups and you say to them, we're going to talk to, you're going to have a conversation with another person and you tell them it's either a member of the in-group or the out-group, arrange the chairs so you'll be comfortable. People arrange them to be much closer to fellow in-group members. Even in our physicality, that sense of we transforms our physical relationships, overcomes boundaries uh, in very important ways. We are more likely to trust others and cooperate others we're more likely to support others and help others. 
There is a transformation of social relations in the direction of intimacy, which allows for co-action and empowerment. But more importantly, it leads to a sense of respect for yourself, a sense of pride in yourself, a sense of validation, a sense of support. Now, if that is true, then the way who you define who is part of we and who isn't becomes absolutely critical. Because if I define the boundaries of my group such as you are part of my common we, then I will trust, respect, cooperate, support you. If, on the other hand, I define the boundaries of my group such that you're not part of the common we, those goods are excluded. So often when we think about questions like, for instance, what does it mean to be British? We think about it in an institutional sense, a formal sense. Do you have a right to vote? Do you have a right to use the NHS? But on top of that, if you are not British, do you get that informal support, that help, that warmth, that respect? I often thought when Damalola Taylor died and Jack Straw asked about why do we have a walk-on-by society, whether there was any connection in that era when we were told to think about joined-up governmental thinking between the debates on immigration and the implication that certain people outside Europe weren't quite as British and shouldn't let, be left into Europe. To what extent did those debates about Britishness reflect upon the informal forms of social support we give to others within this country? But let me give you more warranted evidence. Actually, no, first of all, I'm going to show you some figures. How did you get out? You left the door open. Who left it? You, you did. did. Me? Yes, personally. Yes. yes. I didn't open your door. Yes, you did. This is just a couple of, well, actually you didn't see that one because the technology has done well so far, but it hasn't been perfect. This, was, this is the study that Alex Haslam and I did revisiting Zimbardo's uh, prison experiment. Now, for the purposes of what I want to say here, the salient thing is that people didn't fall into role automatically. But because of a series of processes, at least amongst the prisoners, they went from a state of low social identity, where they didn't think of themselves as a common way, to a state of high social identity. And what you just saw there was in that state of high social identity, you hear them speaking like a Greek chorus in perfect coordination. They hadn't scripted it. They hadn't coordinated beforehand. It's just that sense of common weeness and the assumptions that went with it allowed them to act together and empowered them to challenge what was formerly a more powerful group and actually reverse the power relations. So that was meant to be not a very impressive uh, example of the differences between low and high social identity. What I now want to look at is the reverse side. Having looked at the question of how we define we, what are the implications for others? Now I want to go back to the Holocaust. And I want to go back to the best and the worst of the Holocaust. Amongst all the gloom, there is one country under Axis control where not a single Jew was deported to the death camps, at least from the lands of old Bulgaria. People mobilised. There were two mobilisations in 1941 1943 which stopped the mobilisation dead in its tracks. We analysed that mobilisation and we analysed the discourse of that mobilisation. One of the interesting things about it is you never hear or virtually never hear the word Jew. Because to talk about the deportation of the Jews implies 
somebody other outside our group is being deported. No, there is mention of a national minority, part of us. So they are attacking us. They're not attacking them. And if you think about it, if I ask you the question, should we defend them, you might answer yes, you might answer no, but it's a meaningful question. Should we defend us? The answer is self-evidently yes. So the construction of the boundary of Bulgarian to include the Jew leads to a mobilization to stop the deportation of dead in its tracks. Here is one of the quotes from one of the famous documents uh, which was brought together by Todorov in his uh, wonderful little book, The Fragility of Goodness. He's, here he's talking about Jewish people. They think and speak in Bulgarian. They forge their ways of thinking, feeling out of Botev, Vatsov, Pichko, Slaviakov, Yavarov. They sing Bulgarian folk songs and tell Bulgarian folk tales. It's an intensely poetic and powerful account of inclusion in the boundaries of the nation and therefore support and help Contrast this with Goebbels. What is the first commandment of every national socialist? Love Germany above all else and your ethnic comrade. On one level, of course, this is, seems quite positive. It's about love. It's about support. It's about doing good. But, of course, the sting in the tail is the definition of the boundary, your ethnic comrade. By defining the boundaries narrowly, in terms of ethnicity and excluding Jews, then of course the love that goes to fellow nationals does not extend to Jews. Now of course I'm not suggesting at this point that that's the culmination of the Holocaust. All it was was about an exclusion from the group. The point I'm trying to make at this point is this first diod, how we define us and the boundaries of us and how we treat them, is critical to the question of whether we extend to people the goods of group membership. What about the actual imposition of negatives, of sanctions, all the way up to mass murder? Well, again, I think there is a dyad to be looked at. The first is the definition of the virtuous self. In one, I think, of the most powerful books I've read in recent years by Claudia Kunz on the Nazi conscience, she makes the point that, unpleasant though it is to use the term, you cannot understand Nazism and the success of Nazism without understanding it's a moral project. It was seen as a project to improve society, to make things good, to make things pure. Hitler, cleanliness everywhere. Cleanliness of our government, cleanliness in public life, and also this cleanliness in our culture. Um, between 1933 and 1939, in fact, Hitler hardly ever talks about Jews. He was consciously excluded from any public view during the debate over the 1935 Nuremberg race laws. Did this, as some suggest, mean that he was less anti-Semitic or tempered his views? I want to argue precisely the opposite. No. Because under conditions of virtue, you create the conditions for genocide when one more condition is fulfilled. I'll skip over the next bit. It's just trying to make a similar example from other research we've been doing in India. Because if you combine virtue with threat, and there are many ways in which you can constitute threat, sometimes you simply do it by looking at the birth rates of different groups and you say, look, we're under threat from them. That could be as easily uh, 20 years ago statistics of birth rates in Northern Ireland. Or it could be debates about when India, uh, sorry, when India, when Birmingham will finally have uh, an immigrant majority. These are threat 
discourses, and they take many, many forms. Um, and the Nazi form is well known. He is and remains a typical parasite, a freeloader that spreads like a dangerous bacillus. Wherever it erupts, the host folk perishes sooner or later. The point of that is images, incidentally. People often talk about them as animal images. You know, the other is seen as a rat or as a locust or is seen as a maggot or whatever. Actually, it's not simply that they're dehumanized. It's that they are violations. They're impurities. Uh, they are threats. They are something that threatens to destroy our very nature. Well, the point I'm trying to make is that when you define yourself as virtuous and put effort into defining your own virtue, then, of course, if you add threat to that, the destruction of the other becomes the defense of virtue. And when you put that dyad on top of the first dyad of self-definition and exclusion, you create the conditions where you can begin to represent killing as an act of virtue. And that, in fact, is precisely what you find. <coughs> if I had to think of an emblematic quote from the Holocaust, or indeed from the 20th and 21st century, it wouldn't be any of the ones I've already shown from Arendt or whoever else. It would be this quote from Himmler, given in 1943 to a group of SS guards from the camps in Poznan. He says, most of you must know what it means when 100 corpses are lying side by side, or 500 or 1,000. To have stuck it out and at the same time to have remained decent fellows, this is a page of glory in our history. What he's saying is everybody knows that we have to defend the noble German by destroying the Jew. It's a little bit like we have to destroy the rats that threaten humanity in the sewers. Not everybody has the courage to do it. Not everybody has the steadfastness to do it. It's a dirty job, but it's got to be done. And you are noble because you have the courage to do what is morally right but unpleasant. But it is a short step once you've taken those first four steps. So what can we draw out of this? What can I draw out of <coughs> the argument that I've made so far? I have argued in my first half that evil becomes possible when it can be glorified as the preservation of in-group virtue. I've tried to argue that this involves a series of steps, each of which on its own may not seem that negative. And indeed, some of these steps might seem actively positive when viewed in isolation. That celebration of ourselves as the most civilized people on earth, you might think would make us behave in more civilized ways towards others. The celebration of ourselves as a uniquely tolerant people who will not accept intolerance might be seen as good in isolation. Each step on its own may seem harmless, and therefore you take your eyes off how toxic these things are in combination. And the end point of this process is to make things thing banal. But the profound error, I think, of many psychologists is to think that banality should be equated with nature. That banality of evil should mean that somehow there's something natural that makes us do these things. Actually, banality is the taken for granted. And the taken for granted is not the natural. It's the ideological. It's the end point of an ideological process which is so profound we no longer have to make it explicit because it's made implicit. So the process is far from banal. 
The process of banalization of evil is far from banal and intensely ideological, but once you get to this end step, it does seem almost natural, almost taken for granted. And the point, again, is if we pay no heed to the steps which took others along this path, we're in danger of repeating them. I started my talk with Hannah Arendt, one of the great thinkers of the post-war period. I want to finish with a couple of quotes from another great post-war thinker. I was, earlier when I was talking to uh, Sandra, referred to him as Irving Berlin. Um, I am thinking of Isaiah Berlin, in fact. Um, Two quotes from his wonderful collection, The Crooked Timber of Humanity, uh, and his essay within that, The Pursuit of the Ideal. His point, he says, is that if you desire to save mankind, and if your desire is serious, you must harden your heart and not reckon the cost. And he goes on, the search for perfection does seem to me to be a recipe for bloodshed, no better even if it is demanded by the sincerest of idealists. If you constitute an unquestioned notion of the good as a sole good, then everything that stands in its way can be destroyed. And what makes this even more pernicious and more dangerous, and I think is increasingly a part of our contemporary culture, which is why the notion that we are too civilized ever to do these things is too comforting an illusion, this all becomes more toxic, is when we, our group, our nation, our religion, whatever, represent, to quote Ronald Reagan, the last best hope of humanity and the nearest thing to perfection. very much, Steve. We have, Steve has uh, kindly agreed to take questions, so we have some time for questions from the floor. Just please wait uh, for the microphone, and if you could introduce yourselves and be brief, please. So, um, yeah, my, my name is Jay Shah. Um, I have a question in regards to your ideological process. How does, how does this arise in terms of group dynamics? What kind of ideology, ideology are, we, are we talking about? And secondly, my instinct tells me that these processes you talk about, I would see a vanguard within the group who can stir these, these, or these inclinations. So is it really the group which is the um, causal factor, or is it these crazy individuals, which in other literature, for example, in the Rwandan genocide literature, you'll find where some people were trained and that created a natural inclination for other people, well, that's dangerous, but an inclination for other people to take up arms. So maybe, yeah, and even in the Gujarat case, you could argue that there are certain individuals who are powerfully, you know, um, so that would be my question. Yeah. I mean, that's a very good question. Um, even in an hour, it seems short to me, it probably felt very long to you, um, one can only tell so much of a story. And in a sense, you're quite right, I have only told half a story. Because I think one of the consequences, I think, of the absence of social psychology from the seat of the social sciences, something which uh, Sandra, in a sense, bemoaned, is that we, we share tasks out 
between us in such a way that we never put things together again. And often when you look, say, at the political sciences or sociological sciences, they will look very much at elites. They will look at entrepreneurs of uh, ethnicity uh, and so on. And when you look at psychology, you will see a reference to the mass, to ordinary people. If you look, for instance, at prejudice, it's true that Allport's seminal book in 1954 on prejudice talks about demagogues, a pernicious term, but he's still talking about leadership. There is a 50 years after book by one of the biggest American names in the field, Jack DeVidio, and the word leadership doesn't appear there one single time, which is remarkable because, of course, if you want to understand uh, prejudice and discrimination, we've got to look at the political dynamics and the interest through which elites put forward particular understandings of the other. Um, and then you've also got to ask the question of why uh, the mass, in a sense, is prepared to uh, listen to or take on these particular views. I also think you need to avoid too much of a sort of a one-sidedness of uh, leap to mass, but at least you need to put the two together. And indeed, in the work we've been doing in India, one of the points we've been trying to make is that when you look at the discourses of outgroup threat from the Hindutva, the extreme nationalist uh, uh, wing <coughs> of, uh, of Indian politics, what you find is actually the outgroup is almost irrelevant. There are a series of outgroups. Sometimes it's the Muslim, sometimes it's the Christian, sometimes it's the American, sometimes it's the Arab or whatever. But always the threatening outgroup is invoked for the purposes of challenging the political rival. Now, you therefore have to look at the way in which outgroups are invoked in order to achieve in-group influence and in-group authority. And I certainly think that's a critical issue, uh, but that's, an, that, that's one of the different talks I have to Sandra, but I don't have another else. There was a question here, please. Down here. Tom Dickens. Um, I was, I was very interested in um, the dispositions that you were laying out that can cause people to engage in this kind of um, uh, aggression. Um, and I was sort of intrigued by it because people who are interested in sort of the origins of coalitional aggression often look on it as a very strange um, cooperative exercise that um, we get involved in and, in fact, other species do. Um, and, indeed, there's good evidence coming from sort of uh, um, biological anthropology that, indeed, coalitional aggression is in some senses the antecedent to group cooperation. And so it kind of reverses, in a sense, the uh, polarity of the way you were setting up the question slightly, but it doesn't take away from your message, I don't think. But I was wondering, then the problem becomes what on earth it is that motivates people to actually cooperate across groups at all. Mm. So it would seem that, in fact, our natural disposition is to be coalitionally aggressive, to think about in groups. But we break that mold sometimes. I was wondering if you had any reflections on what might shift us mm. in a more positive direction. I mean, there is a larger question there of, of the nature of an evolutionary explanation. I am no creationist, but I think there are two forms of evolutionary theory. There's one which tries to exhaustively explain the present, always in terms of the adaptive gain, uh, which you can trace to some period in the past. And there's another which asks, what sort of systems must we have evolved to gain the advantages we do as human beings? Now, for me, one of the advantages of what we have as human beings is we are not imprisoned by our past. We are able to plan the future. And the reason why we are able to plan the future is we are distanced from the present through representational systems like self. Uh, I'm sure Sandra will talk about social representations as well. They give us flexibility. 
They allow us to form all sorts of different types of coalitions at different times and in different circumstances. So for me, one of the fundamental things about being human is that for humans, relatedness is social, not biological. Let me give you a simple example of that. It's quite a trite example. Um, years and years ago, um, I went to see England play Germany in the semi-final of Euro 96. At the time, I was living in Exeter, and I missed the last plane, uh, plane train, um, and I slept on Paddington Station, which is not a pleasant experience. So I looked around and thought, God, who do I need to sit near to just to defend me in case anything goes wrong? And I looked for people who had... Uh, programs from the England match. These were people I normally wouldn't touch with a barge pole. There were people almost universally without a neck and without any hair, I'm a bit like me. <laughs> but in that circumstance, that common category, which was a social category, led me to feel that there was a coalitional possibility. Um, now, when you ask why do we actually form those coalitions, again, I think there are arguments at different levels. First of all, it is through constituting groups and constituencies that leaders gain people to follow them and therefore gain power. So part of the explanation must be at a political level. I think there are also benefits and gains and passions for the individual. So I do think that the notions of recognition and I think the notions of respect and I think the notions of intimacy and acceptance and so on are profoundly positive because one of the problems of being human beings who are so flexible, are able to plan our distance from the present, is that all our beliefs, all our knowledge is contingent and needs to be validated. So I think if you like, that I do see a biological dis, uh, explanation as a distal explanation, the proximal explanations of coalition formation and actions as coalitions, I think need to take into account uh, psychological, social and political types of factors. Thank you. Um, my name is Hilary Brown and I'm a psychotherapist. I'm really interested in... Um, your, your comments about that it wasn't just Germany, but I'm, I'm also very interested in Alice Miller's work around the roots of evil in child rearing. I wondered if you'd just comment on that, because it seems as if the internalized dialogue that comes from the, the sort of process that you're describing um, would also have a bearing on, on what happens and on wh which position people take up in relation to that, those sorts of authority. Let me make... A comment. One of, in fact, probably many people there here will know him. Charlie Husband, a number of years ago, actually quite a long time ago, I think in 76, wrote a book, Race in Britain. And he tells a story about doing interviews with young children um, about racism. And he says, look, he had two kids who came to him uh, consecutively. And one was a really nasty piece of work who snarled and was unpleasant and talked about niggers and who said, and we've got to keep them out. And the next child who came along was a lovely child and a nice child and a kind child and a liberal child and probably a guardian reading child who then said very sadly, but of course, if we have immigration, then there'll be conflict, so we've got to keep people out. Now, the point that Charlie was trying to make is that what was significant? Was it the difference or was it the taken-for-grantedness which was the commonality between them? And again, McBillig makes a lovely point which says, yes, probably personality and individual upbringing explain racism when racism is counter-normative, when racism is a minority. But the more that racism becomes a taken-for-granted and the more that you have to be exceptional to fight against it, the less relevant it is. So that level of explanation, it's not that it's irrelevant, 
It's just that it becomes more irrelevant as the phenomenon becomes more socially important. So I am sure that there are issues about upbringing, and I'm sure that there are issues about rearing which affect how people act. But at the same time, the danger is that once we constitute taken for granted, such that even nice, liberal, and kind people like us take it as self-evident we need to exclude people or perhaps go further, that's when we really have a problem. There is a question here, please. Uh, uh, thank you very much indeed. A very enjoyable talk. Um, my background is social psychology, the LSE here specifically. Um, I'm interested in your interpretation of Zimbardo's uh, work. You're very brave uh, to discard both Zimbardo and Mirgram. Uh, but particularly, I thought he was saying something very different about Abu Ghraib. I thought he was drawing a distinction between people who are morally culpable because of individual attributes, moral decisions and whatever, and what he said was about the pressures that were brought to bear on them in the circumstances. And I thought that was very different from your interpretation, which is that they had no choice. Let, let me first of all say something about Milgram and Zimbardo, because on the one hand, <coughs> I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be saying the things that, that I'm saying were it not for the fundamental shift in understanding they brought about. If you look at the post-war period, the immediate post-war explanation of uh, the Holocaust was in terms of the authoritarian personality. Then a series of great studies, Sharif, Milgram, Zimbardo, said, look, you've got to take uh, situational and group factors into account. Now, that is fundamental, and I agree fundamentally with that. What I question is the type of group account uh, that they give to us. So in a sense, I come equally to praise, but also to criticize. Uh, and in fact, the more successful any theory is, the more it provides the grounds for its own disconfirmation. It, it frames the argument. Um, so I, well, the fact of the matter is I know Zimbardo not to be pleased that we are questioning him, but I would hope that he would be pleased that we feel the debate is important enough to engage in. I do not intend, in, in a sense, to uh, disrespect immensely important work. And if I've done that, then I'm pleased with the question that I can write that. In terms of Abu Ghraib, Zimbardo's arguments have been quite popular because quite rightly he has pointed to the responsibility of people at the top of the system. He has pointed to the responsibility of Donald Rumsfeld, to the Hawks, to the people who talk about Iraq as a swamp and therefore by implication talk about Iraqis as swamp animals. Uh, he's criticized the senior officers. He's quite right to do that and I'm entirely in agreement with that. But in a sense, he seems to have a sort of zero-sum game. If they are responsible and they make the choices, it means that those at the bottom don't make the choices. Well, I think that actually the answer is to look at people's responsibility at all levels of the system, not, not to substitute responsibility at the bottom for responsibility at the top. And again, I come back to Hannah Arendt. Because Hannah Arendt, actually she draws on Mary McCarthy, but she makes a very important distinction between force and temptation. And she makes the, fact, uh, the point that, yes, there were for uh, the Nazis, um, and in fact not only for the Nazis, very strong temptations to kill others, but they weren't forced to do it. And similarly at Abu Ghraib, those people had temptations, they had legitimations, but they weren't forced to do it. They did make a choice to do it. I think they were psychologically able to do that. So... At a moral level, I think they are responsible. At a psychological level, the notion that they didn't know what they were doing, I don't buy. 
Hi, Bosgill. Thanks very much, Steve, for a wonderful lecture. Um, it sort of follows on from that. It's two questions. First of all, it's a question about the use of the word evil, mm. um, which was kind of treated as rather self-evident. And yes. I just you know, wanted to kind of open that up. Mm. And then secondly, to ask whether or not you think we need a kind of universal, general psychological understanding of these phenomena, or whether or not we need kind of much more radical specificity mm. to understand maybe sort of the behavior of the Rumsfelds and the Blairs mm. of this world compared with <coughs> the officers on the ground, compared with what's happening in Serbia now, and so on. Mm. I mean, okay, evil. You're quite right. Evil is not a psychological term. Um, it is a moral term. I use it because it has been used before me. Um, and you're quite right that uh, I haven't specified it as I should. And you, occasionally you, you, you heard me uh, use phrases like, you know, extreme inhumanity to others. Um, precisely, my point is that those who commit evil don't see it as evil. They see it as virtues. So from their point of view, no, it isn't evil. Um, so you're quite right that instead of talking about evil, I'm clearly referring to uh, acts of violence perpetrated against others uh, all the way up to, uh, to mass murder. So, I, so you're quite right on that. Um, generality and specificity. I, I really like the discussions of people like Terry Eagleton on this. Because he says, look, we, of course there's generality. To be specific as human beings is a general statement about us. To say we're cultural is to say something about our species' nature. He says that, you know, however much you read uh, Kierkegaard to your cat, uh, your cat will not become an existentialist. Now, there is something about my species' nature. Well, I have a very intelligent cat, so perhaps. Um, we have a species' nature which allows us to be social, which allows us to be cultured and encultured. So it seems to me that it is self-evident that as human beings, there is both generality and there is specificity. I take that as a given. Now, the devil, of course, is in the detail, and in terms of in any particular model, has one gone too far in terms of generality or in terms of specificity? And therefore, I think one should always be willing to contemplate notions of generality, because without it we might find it difficult to understand certain phenomena, but we should also do it with a light tread so we can retrace our steps if we get into dangerous ground. Uh, many hands are up. There was a question on this side first. Someone who was there? Yes, and then um, I'll Yes, thank you for your talk. My name is Angela Mancy. I, I lecture social psychology, so I'm quite interested to hear your views. Two questions, really. They've sort of grown as I've been listening to you. But the first one is you said that um, governments certainly make um, an outgroup, possibly as the, the threat to society. So it's looking at the sincerest of idealists. Would you say that currently our civil liberties are under threat because the outgroup now is becoming the Islamic terrorist and everything's been taken away from us in terms of identity and surveillance society? And secondly, would you say now that given the awful history that the Jews have suffered, um, they could be more compassionate to those in Gaza? In terms of, I mean, whether you're inviting me as a social psychologist or in terms of my own political views uh, is a moot point. Um, I, I don't think I'm giving too much away to say that I'm not Tony Blair's greatest fan and I'm not particularly keen on what's going on um, in Gaza. I do think there is a very interesting question about a liberal illiberalism, the discourse of uh, tolerance. We're doing some work on that 
right at the moment, and we're looking at the paradox of the conditions where defining your own group, specifically we're looking at definitions of Europe as being tolerant, lead to a certain intolerance. Um, and what you find is that, I'll, I'll describe one of the studies to you. You um, ask people to think about Turkey and its place in Europe. And you either describe Turkey as secular or as Islamic. Um, and with a very light touch, you could do it just with an Islamic flag next to Turkey. And what you find, first of all, is the label Islam invokes very powerful negative views. Then, under those conditions, if you get people to stress and think about European tolerance and make it very salient to them, they are more rejecting of Turkey uh, from the EC. Because despite all the protestations you might subsequently make when you say, ah, oh, not all uh, um, uh, Muslims are intolerant, clearly the invocation of that group membership and that stereotype often uh, outruns whatever you say. So I am concerned about uh, a liberal illiberalism. Uh, I am concerned about the intolerant use of the rhetoric of tolerance. And one of the analyses we've done is on one of Tony Blair's speeches uh, that he made, I think it was December 2006, on precisely that view. So I, I think that's a very important issue and a very important question. And I mean, I meant to sow those seeds in the way that I, uh, uh, that I did this last, uh, last slide. In terms of uh, Israel, there's some very interesting work by Sonia Rokas, who is an Israeli social psychologist, who has looked at both identification and glorification of, uh, of Israel amongst uh, Israeli citizens, and looking at their reaction to moral violations precisely in Gaza. And she finds identifying as an Israeli doesn't necessarily mean that you accept uh, moral violations on the West Bank and in Gaza, because it depends on <laughs> what the meaning of the identity is to you. However, glorification, the notion of Israel as uniquely good, does very much correlate with a willingness to uh, ignore moral violations by the in-group. So the, the dynamics I've been describing are, in a sense, illustrated by Sonia's work in Israel. There was a question on this side. Yes, I think it's here before and then. My name is Nicola Zari, and uh, I'm a psychologist who's now working in political science, basically. And well, I'd like to thank you for changing my perspective on banality evil. I'm sure no other textbook would ever be able to do that. But basically, the end point is my question. Um, if the memory of the genocide and the Holocaust and the Khmer Rouge as a background of that picture kind of portrays does not allow us to stop humanity committing these acts, should we maybe be addressing the we and how we define groups and how we allow people to grow up to be able to define groups in with so much ease mm. without thinking of the repercussions of those actions? See, one of the things about psychology often, when it treats <coughs> prejudice, stereotype, and discrimination, is its dominant cognitivism leads us to the conclusion that racism is an error of judgment. Racism is either due to a flaw in the individual personality or it's due to a universal flaw in the human psyche, uh, which leads us in that direction. So over a number of years, there was a predominant view which said, look, as human beings, uh, we have limited cognitive capacity. The world is too complex for us. So we simplify it and we use heuristics and biases. And these then feed into categorical thinking. And categorical thinking in general is in error. 
But the general point is that prejudice is sort of, it's a mistake. It's a flaw. Where there is racism, there is an interest. Where there is racism, somebody gains from it. Where there is racism, somebody is selling it to you, and somebody is making quite a lot of hay out of doing it. Now, we, and this goes back to the question that, that you asked earlier on. It seems to me that the psychological view, which is to abstract the cognitive, our understanding from the world, from those who are trying to shape the world in particular ways and lead us in, in particular directions, pulls these things apart and means we'll never fully come to understand them. So we need to understand, first of all, the reasons why people advance notions, particular notions of the other. We need to understand how they do so effectively, and we need to understand the conditions under which people are prepared to take on, uh, those constructions on board. Um, it seems to me that uh, this discussion, that uh, this, this uh, talk that you've, gave, uh, you've given, is uh, could be placed in the, you know, classical intentionalist versus uh, fun functionalist debate. And it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that you've taken a very strong intentionalist uh, attitude. Um, what is, I think, problematic with intentionalist prop, uh, uh, ideas is that when you really look at the, carefully at the historical development of the Holocaust, then something uh, re emerges that, is, that was uh, um, called the twisted road to Auschwitz. Mm. So I was wondering, what, what is your you know, interpretation of the twisted road? Mm. And do, do you see this as a problematic to your thesis? Mm. <coughs> I was in fear that there would be experts on the Holocaust who would, who would uh, question me about my Holocaust scholarship. I'm very much an outsider. I am an interested outsider, um, partly intellectually, partly because it's my own history. <coughs> but I'm no expert, so I read it in part and try to understand it. My reading of the latest literature, like yours, is precisely um, that probably neither the intentionalist nor the, uh, the fully functionalist account is particularly helpful, and that certainly um, you know, many, many other schemes were tried out and attempted uh, before there was the turn uh, to extermination. And in fact, uh, says Rani makes that point quite clearly in his account of Eichmann himself. Eichmann changed. Eichmann slipped. Eichmann went from uh, you know, the notion of resettlement to the, to the notion of killing. So I don't see my view as necessarily mapping onto that debate between intentionalism and functionalism. So I hope that the problems of intentionalism don't uh, uh, infect my argument. Now, in a sense, what I did is I did produce a rather formal account of the conditions, the, if you like, the psychological and rhetorical conditions under which killing uh, becomes possible. I, and, and I do them in a truncated sense and not in a historical sense of how they developed or why they were put forward. I think the debate that you're suggesting would map onto the question of how and when and under what conditions these arguments were put forward by the entrepreneurs of destruction. So I think the problem lies at a different level to that which I've been discussing today. I hope. Okay, we'll take one more question there. Good evening. Yeah, my question is pretty related to the one which has just been asked. I am no psychologist, so if it's a bit naive, my apologies. 
Um, did you notice during your study any qualitative difference between the behavior of uh, German troops uh, in uh, death camps and, uh, during, the, and during the killings uh, on the Eastern Front with, with, uh, outside the death camps? Um, there were Eidsatzgruppen, which were pro, uh, ideologically certainly pretty national socialists, but there was also battalions such as this 101st Battalion of, uh, of Police. Um, they were in direct contact with the, with the Jews and they were killing them themselves. In the death camps, it was pretty much different. Uh, the SS administration uh, there was not uh, in contact with the dead bodies. It was, they were carried by uh, Sonder commanders. Uh, is there any difference for you? I mean, one thing that is perfectly true is that on the whole, the, uh, the guards in the death camps were people who were unfit for duty on the Eastern Front. Um, what's more, when they argue they didn't have a choice, uh, again, Arendt makes the rather acerbic observation, they always had a choice to volunteer for the Eastern Front, um, and they presumably thought it was a rather cushier number uh, to murder people in large numbers than to fight on the, on the Eastern Front. Um, in terms of the question of is there a systematic difference, I mean, the difficulty is, I mean, of course, there are confounds of many sorts between uh, um, you know, talking about um, Browning and the early 40s and talking about the death camps that came afterwards. So it would be hard to single out a particular factor. I mean, if I can read between the lines, perhaps inaccurately, uh, I, I wonder whether what you're arguing is, is a process of brutalization, which makes people uh, in some sense insensitive and leads them to act uh, in different ways. That seems to me perfectly plausible. Do I have any direct evidence? No. Okay, well, uh, we're going to close here. It's 8 o'clock. So thank you very much for coming, and thank you to Professor Riker for a wonderful lecture. Thank you. Thank you.